My name is Russell Atkins. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings this morning, who is somewhere else. Um, I want to welcome members. I especially want to welcome our visitors here in person and those uh, watching online. We're doing lesson number 10 in uh, the quarterly today, but before we get into that, I want to read uh, an email that came to the Common Reason email. Dear Common Reason Ministries, I can't thank you enough for your ministry. Dedication to spread the truth and eagerness to share it to others. My family has benefited greatly because of this ministry. One SDA church that we attended became more concerned about what went into their mouths than what came out. Uh, That's a great line. Let me explain. We once ate cheese. This became known to the vegan church members who then did not hesitate to chastise, ridicule, and condemn all too frequently. My response to their comments was always the same. I would like to see some evidence to back up your claim that eating cheese is harmful to the body. Not one person shared information that would back up their claim. From personal research, reading case studies, and reading slash listening to well-educated individuals, I have learned the benefits from eating a plant-based diet. These changes were made to enhance my ability to hear the Holy Spirit by clearing out, clearing out the foods that clogged my brain's ability to think clearly. What an opportunity these church members missed. They should and could have shared the benefits and the blessings the Holy Spirit is eager to bestow on us. On another occasion, I wore red shoes to church. This too angered certain individuals who got an elder to come talk to me. <laughs> uh, I've been in churches like this. So, I mean, it's funny because it's true. My response was once again the same. If you can show me biblically, whether in principle or in facts, why wearing red shoes to church is incorrect, I will gladly make the corrections. Otherwise, I will be constantly conforming to other members' opinions and desires instead of standing firm in Christ. Needless to say, I continued to wear those red shoes. It got to be such a hot topic uh, with the church members that an elder from the pulpit read a quote from Ellen G. White stating that, quote, every female should have something red. (laughs) Someone dug deep for that one. I, I wasn't familiar with that quote. My first thought is, why do we make it so easy for the devil to corrupt us from within? I mean, we don't even put up a good fight. That's, that's exactly right. We just willingly and gladly listen and then act in the devil's good favor. Maybe this is why Jesus calls us sheep. On a more positive note, meaning my family, we see the dangers of conforming to opinion rather than to principle. We once thought that on preparation day, the, quote, list had to get done at all costs. Otherwise, we would not have a blessed Sabbath. My husband and I had our greatest fights on Friday from being overly stressed to complete that list. This put such a burden on our children. Then we would go to church and pretend that everything was okay. We honestly thought that it should be because we completed the list, right? About 15 years ago, during one of our many discussions, my daughter and I came to realize that we needed to be truthful, really truthful to God. We concluded that since we wanted to grow spiritually, the best way was and is to be brutally honest. How can we allow God to clean us up if we don't agree that we're dirty? So, we went to church wearing our relationship with Christ on our sleeves for all to see. Looking back, it was the single best choice we made. Now we are open to change on God's terms, not ours. We had the eagerness to want to grow closer to Him, and the desire just got stronger with each passing day. Then you came along. We read your books and reread your books. The God-shaped brain, the God-shaped heart. 
and we eagerly listen to your Sabbath school lessons and read your blogs and listen to podcasts. Talk about drastic rewiring. We couldn't get enough. By the way, we read your books on family vacations. This allowed us to have growth spurts in unspeakable proportions. We had great discussions, talked about principles, and learned how to apply them. Even though our children are married, we continue to have thought-provoking discussions via text. We eagerly share when there is a new podcast or when the lesson study is downloaded. What has changed? Well, it's very difficult for me to get things done, like house cleaning, etc., because the remedy keeps me so captivated I can't seem to put it down. Let there be dust as long as I have my relationship with Christ solid as a rock. Amen. Amazingly, the stress on preparation day is gone and the joy is back. Much to my surprise, the, quote, list is done with a song in our hearts and blessings all around. When we read Ellen G. White, Oswald Chambers, and the Bible, we realize that the truth was there all along. Praise God, you helped us to see it. You really did help us come and reason. Uh, whoever you are, I hope you're watching today. I hope you're listening. And, and it's members like you that make this possible. We get letters like this all the time to affirm and support us. They affirm and support us with donations. They affirm and support us with prayers. Um, and thank you. Thank you all. All right, lesson 10, living the gospel. Memory text, for grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is this is one of the texts that should stand out in, in stark relief uh, amongst a, a book that is filled with pearls of wisdom. This one is a big pearl. Um, any thoughts on reading this text or hearing it, Linda? Well, I I find it to be true in life as well that you can you if you pray. Uh, say in the morning, which I think is a wonderful morning prayer every morning, if there's somebody you need that needs to hear your voice, somebody you have something to say to or to do for, bring them to me and tell me what to say and I'll be happy to do it. And he answers that prayer every time. I mean, amazing circumstances have happened where I happen to be, you know, at the right place where the person who needed what God had to hear was, be it in my work or in just in personal life. So I love the part where it says where, where God prepared beforehand <laughs> that we should walk in him. I mean, he, he has an idea of where it would be our best influence if we just open to it. Mm -hmm. Yes, well said. So which gospel are we to live? Title of the lesson, Living the Gospel. Wendell. The first sentence of that, the memory text, um, you are saved through faith. For a long time I thought faith was hocus pocus something. Right. If you exchange the word faith for trust, then it becomes who do you trust? And the gospel is about who we trust. Well said. My understanding is the Greek for faith is hypostasis. Is that accurate? Pistis. Okay. <laughs> Okay, no, 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 it's sub substance. Under, okay. 
the text, faith is the substance of things not seen. The substance that the uh, the Greek is hypostasis. Hypo meaning below or under. Stasis meaning static or standing. So faith is the understanding of things not perceived. God has provided enough information. In fact, he's provided enough information without scriptures. He's provided enough information in creation. The things that, that all you have to do is walk outside and, and be observant. And you can see that his handiwork is written all through creation. Even the creation marred with sin, the groaning under the weight of sin. There's a constant giving, a constant cycling. He makes the uh, sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He makes the rain fall. He, 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 gives, he provides us with food, fresh air, provides us with shelter. I mean, he provides us with life itself. The gifts are, are, are overwhelming. And to develop an understanding of that to begin with, and then to understand the, the laws that underpin that life, the design laws, the laws of love, the laws of worship, the laws of health, the laws of physics, the laws of, of uh, giving and exertion and restoration. That's, uh, that's our privilege to understand how life was designed and then freely choose to operate in harmony with those laws. Please. I like the workmanship part that we have a creator that, yes, he created this phenomenal world for us, but that he's <clears throat> willing and able to recreate us mm-hmm. and recreate us in his image and recreate our heart. To me, that's the gospel, okay, that I don't have to be what I am, that I can be what he wants me to be and that he has the power if I will cooperate with him to recreate and restore us back to our original design nobility. Give us the heart of love and trust. Okay. Um, how many different Gospels are there? And what are some of the fundamental differences between them? There's the prosperity Gospel. Okay. I, I, I don't presume to list all of them, but the prosperity Gospel is one of them. It's uh, Unpack it a little bit for us. Give us the Cliff Notes version of it. If you're blessed by God, you, he will bless you with money and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, at which there are a lot of wealthy people in the Bible, but also Jesus said, you know, it's very hard to enter heaven when you're wealthy. So why would he increase the wealth of most people if it made it harder for them to be saved? And yet that's a very powerful incentive for some people. And look at Job. All of his friends thought that prosperity gospel was there. You know, you must have done something wrong. All these bad things took away your wealth. And so you must be cursed of God. Right. If you're if you're healthy and wealthy, then God favors you. If you're sick and poor, well, there's some, hid, some hidden sin in your life or your parents' life or their parents' life that you're having to, you're paying for. If you're a leper, well, then you're a sinner. Go live in a cave. Any other types of Gospels? Back on the prosperity Gospel. Okay. If we um, follow the design principles, if we apply those, there are inherent blessings built in. Right. Whether that's money or health or 
um, anything that would be defined under that umbrella of prosperity. It doesn't just have to be money. It could be relationships. Any other thoughts? If anyone's ever given you a book of Mormon, one of the first lines that you'll read is that this is another gospel. And uh, so there are those who claim to have another pathway than what we have traditionally followed in the uh, scripture, mm-hmm. King James Version at least. This is from Sabbath's lesson, from the lesson itself. As soon as we talk about God's commands, requirements, or instructions, we run the risk or even face the temptation of thinking that somehow what we do can earn or contribute to our salvation or otherwise gain favor with God. The Bible tells us repeatedly that we are sinners saved by God's grace through Jesus and his substitutionary death for us on the cross. I think that's well said. Um, any other thoughts? It Rightly understood, that's well said. The, the, the substitutionary death line, correctly understood, is wholly accurate. Incorrectly understood, it, it can be destructive, and it depends on what law lens we're looking through. Sunday's lesson, For God So Loved. <clears throat> the lesson points out that the Greek word cosmos is used for the world. K-O-S-M-O-S. It sounds a lot like the English word cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S, meaning the universe. The entire universe. Does that text read any differently if we say, for God so loved the cosmos, see, the universe that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes should not perish but have eternal life? And does that does that interpretation call in, into any does that is that triggering some synapses in your brains and any other texts that lead us to to uh, the conclusion that it wasn't just for mankind alone that Christ came, but it was for the entire unlooking universe. The text says the word theater and spectacle. Yeah. Okay. First Corinthians four nine. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Any others? And Christ himself in John twelve thirty two, And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. Now we understand that the word people or men has been added uh, by the original transcribers. The, the original Greek said that I will draw all unto myself. The understanding that Christ was not only speaking of all men, but he was speaking of all created beings that hadn't already seared their consciences beyond repair. Think about the questions that were answered for the angels. But I thought Earth was the only planet that was sinful. Why would he have to die for other worlds if there was no sin in other worlds? Well, my understanding is there was there isn't sin in other worlds, in, even in heaven. However, don't you think the can put yourself in the place of a, an unfallen angel in heaven? You were friends with Lucifer. You were friends with Michael, the being that we know as Christ. Now Lucifer and a third of your friends are, are gone, and you you have 
you've expl- you've been all that's been explained to you is well they they were they were they were put out of heaven because it was creating a rebellion it was creating corruption well why why what what, what was the problem i i didn't i didn't choose to side with him but he he brought up some interesting points and some interesting questions so god said let me provide some evidence let there be light let the land separate, let the uh, firmament separate, let the land separate from the waters. And he created, and then he gave a, a, a specified 24-hour period for the universe to to um, think about it. And then Adam and Eve sided in confederacy with Satan. And the questions remained in the angels' minds. I know, but I've always thought that the angels observing Earth and what's happening on planet Earth, that would be enough to understand the confusion that Satan caused. Therefore, they wouldn't want him back in heaven. I'm sure some questions were answered by watching uh, men grow violent uh, with each subsequent generation and then the flood eradicating them and then picking right up where they left off and the the, the confusion, the, the anger, the violence, the, the, um, the death, the, the sleep that we understand is death. But I'm, my understanding is that they still had questions right up until the point Christ died. where Christ died. Then, and Satan was unmasked as, oh, so if he had been, if he'd been able to operate unrestrained in heaven, he would have, he would have physically killed the Son of God. And just to take his place in the hearts and minds of created beings. Then their questions were answered. Then, then, then angelic beings and unfallen beings had, had, they were then so settled into the truth that they could not be moved. They had no, they had no more questions, no more comments, no more concerns. They were, they were solid. But and then only humanity remained. But it also ex- revealed God. To them, sure. Oh, absolutely. There was a lot revealed. The lengths that God would go to, to this little speck in a monstrously big universe, a tiny little speck, and people on it less than specks. You know, for him to, to, to go become a man, allow us to torture him to death. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it revealed God's character, revealed Christ's character, really Satan's character. That he values our freedom so much that he would allow us to kill him. To preserve our freedom. That's right. He had to do this to become our remedy. To become the remedy for us, he had to go through that. Oh, I'd certainly. I mean, he, you know, Hebrews tells us that once he was made perfect through suffering, he became you know, uh, immortality. So that, that suffering, which often gets eliminated in, in quotations in here, um, was not, it's not talking about the physical suffering of being flogged with leather straps with little barbs of iron in them. Cause that's how they flogged, uh, folks back then. That, that was their, that was their beating. Stick, leather straps with pieces of iron, little hooks of iron in it. When we get to heaven, the scars in his hands and feet will pale in comparison with his back. I'll bet his back looks like the, the surface of the moon. If you've never heard Jack Blanco in his Teachings of Jesus class talk about it, it it's incredibly moving. But it wasn't the physical suffering. It was the 
the psycho-emotional suffering in Gethsemane where, where he was just overwhelmed with the separation from his father. It was the suffering of being tempted every day, far, far above the way we are tempted. I'm tempted once, and I, I give in. <laughs> all right, you win. I, I hardly combat it at all. He was tempted repeatedly over and over and over again, the same, same things in every way like we are, yet without sin. That's the suffering that allowed him to develop this character that he offers as, as, a, as a gift. And that, that, that approach all the way to the cross and eventually to death had to happen in order for that to be completed. If he, if he had used his power whether it's human power or his uh, divine power, any way along the along the uh, pathway to stop it, he would have said he would have Satan's allegations would have been correct. He, God would have used his power to save himself. You know, many many lessons, but and many characters were revealed at the cross. And you can see in the Bible where it says everybody was telling him, "Save yourself, save yourself." If he saved others, let him come off the cross and save himself, and that's. And all the way along, every group was telling him to save himself. And the remedy for cure is the unselfish character required to have in heaven to exist in the eternal universe that we don't have and can't have without him. I don't know if you've ever read Sigvie Tonstad's book, God of Sense and Traditions of Nonsense. He, he unpacks that a little bit more. Think for a minute if Christ had unveiled his glory. Even in a diminished manner, he had torn the nails out of the cross and floated above the crowd and said, okay, I'm saving myself. Those that would have believed would have done so out of a sense of fear. That irrefutable proof that he was a son of God would have been coercive. It would have violated, on some level, some people's human beings' freedom to weigh out evidence for themselves and make an intelligent and informed choice. They would have believed out of fear. Proof can be coercive. Evidence, allowing people or beings the freedom to weigh out evidence, is not coercive. That's where penal substitution also breaks down because if all God had to do, all, was sacrifice my son to pay, you know, basically just satisfy my anger, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't have said anything to the rest of the universe as much as Christ willingly and God willingly together laying out a plan to save humanity by revealing his love. And that's, that's really what happened. There's a popular song right now, I'm Thankful for the Scars, probably most people heard a uh, popular Christian song. And it's a, it talks about not just physical scars, but the scars that we've had from having to make mistakes and learn and mm-hmm. heal. But then at the end it says, I'm thankful for your scars, because without them I wouldn't know who you are. And I think that's the, that's the whole point. It shows the universe who he is. Even though they didn't sin, they see now who he is for real. Right. Wendell? When you talk about coercive force, if Christ would have demonstrated coercive force, number one, it would not be his character. But if he would have used coercive force... People would have been coerced, but they would not believe. And that was part of the parable about um, Lazarus and others, you know, 
even if somebody came from the dead, you won't believe. I mean, they saw somebody come from the dead, they didn't believe. You know, this is all about God and who he is. It's not about me. Yes, I'm a part of it. But it's about God. Mm-hmm. In Romans 3, 4, may you win your case in court. You know, it's about God. So the lesson asked us to consider John 3.17 along with its more famous predecessor. So John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now how have have Christianity historically lived out this text? Or have we? Have we presented Jesus, the one who tries his best to save and heal? Or as, as one who condemns? And more to the point, how have we presented his father? One who stands between himself and the father. Right. Of us. It's one who's a magic, magic lead shield against the uh, fire and brimstone. We have Christ facing the wrong direction. Oh, yeah. Isn't that the truth? So, whenever he is with the father, he's totally facing us with demonstrations of who God is to us. He's not pleading. He's pleading with us. Yes, along with the Father, in addition to... He, the Father, the Holy Spirit are all pleading in one direction. And the entire angelic host. That's right. They're, They're pleading with humanity because we're the only ones that need the saving. So, from Monday's lesson, Compassion and Repentance, this is from the lesson, Our world is not what it was created to be. And although we bear the image of God who created us, we are part of the world's brokenness. The sin in our lives is of the same nature as the evil that causes so much pain, oppression, and exploitation all over the world. Again, I think this is well said. Um, I I don't know if it's just me, but whoever authored this quarter's lesson and edited it, um, I think did a really good job. (laughs) One of the things that one of the things that make things easier for me to teach is to find some nugget uh, in the lesson and contradict it. <laughs> okay. And the past few times I've taught, I've found fewer and fewer things to disagree with. So thanks guys for making this a lot more difficult for me, <laughs> but to give credit where credit's due. Um, I, I hope this is evidence of the Holy spirit working in the uh, the authors and the editors uh, of the corporate Adventist church and not just in this class. So have you ever passed a, a homeless person or perhaps someone with a f- physical or mental deficit and, and thought, well, there but for the grace of God go I? Okay. Have you ever passed a uh, murderer, a rapist, or an embezzler, or a child molester and thought, there but for the grace of God go I? Well, guess what, folks? It's the same grace. It's the exact same grace. A removal of God's grace from our lives would produce all sorts of chaos. And we're starting, and we're seeing it in real time. We're seeing God's, God's Holy Spirit, the restraining grace of God, is slowly being removed as it's being rejected. Just in the, the 50-some years of my life, I see it accelerating. And I sometimes wonder if every generation thought the same thing. 
But I talk to patients who are in their 80s, and they say, well, no, it seems to be getting faster, the, the, the idiocy, the corruption, the, the chaos. It's snowballing. Despite the reset of the flood. Right. You know, it was terrible before the flood. And so, you know, we are... As it was in the days of Noah, right. so shall it be. There have been several resets. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, before the flood, the Bible says their thoughts were wicked continually. That doesn't necessarily mean people looking at them would have realized that. Just like today. You may not look like a wicked person, <laughs> a person harboring wicked thoughts, but God looks on the heart. And so no matter what they might have done or not done to look politically correct, on the inside, their thoughts were evil continually. And the people right. are in danger of that as well. And there was only one righteous man on the planet. Paul's description of men being lovers of themselves, etc., comes pretty close. Yeah. Or our description of what we're seeing. We're a generation selfie, generation Instagram, generation dopamine fix with a Facebook like. Again from uh, Monday's lesson. Thus it is right for us to feel the hurt, the discomfort, sorrow, and tragedy of the world and of the lives around us. We would have to be robots not to feel the pain of life here. The laments in the book of Psalms and the sorrows of Jeremiah and other prophets and the tears and compassion of Jesus demonstrate the appropriateness of this kind of response to the world and its evil, particularly to those who are so often hurt by that evil. I want to suggest that as our characters are molded and shaped to that like Christ, this will be our new natural reaction to pain and suffering. We will become more empathetic to the pains and needs of others. I think it's it's just simply an evidence of the the outgrowth and the working of character of God. Like the situation that's going on down in Mexico with the Guatemalans and all these Nicaraguans, whatever coming in, and you watch it on the news, and I see these little kids and stuff, and I think to myself, what am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to do as a Christian? What do you do? How do you react to this? I find it very one of the hardest things, you know, because they haven't murdered, they haven't killed somebody, and yet we're refusing them entrance. I mean, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with them. I'm just saying, as a Christian, I went and read in Patriarchs and Prophets about how the Israelites were to treat the aliens in their camp and stuff, you know? Yeah. I'm not going to dig into that can of worms. I'm going to leave. <laughs> I, first of all, I thank you for bringing it up, but I'm going to leave that question rhetorical for because... Every person in their own mind and conscience has to wrestle with that. Wendell. One of the uh, tasks in medicine is to distance yourself from suffering so that you don't become incapacitated while you're taking care of suffering. Mm -hmm. And yet, one of the tasks of medicine is to become compassionate with the hurts around you. And I think to some degree... We in society have become conditioned to um, be insulated and not feel the hurt of those around us. I think it's truly Christ-like to become sensitive to those issues. Now, one thing that concerns me is that 
we are bombarded with media of things that we we can have no control over, but we can have control over something that's next door to us. And so it would be better if we were insulated from the things that we cannot change, but open to the things that are next door to us that we have chosen to be insulated away from. I think it's a good point. I think it ties in with you know, Linda's comment earlier about praying for those who need your particular intervention to be under pathways to cross and for us to be aware of it and willing to do it. <clears throat> um, all right, so bringing this even closer to home, I want to – how many of you saw the news Tuesday night, Wednesday morning uh, about uh, – there's a single car crash on one uh, exit ramp, 153. Okay. I saw that. I was driving to my girlfriend's house toward Costco and got past, got right up with the 153 on ramp on 75. And I saw some people's heads on the shoulder and no vehicles. I thought, well, that, that doesn't make sense. And as I looked over, they were standing around a human body. And I thought, the the thing in your brain, it it doesn't compute. And sometimes we're used to seeing deer that try to cross the the freeway and get hit, or a dog, or, or some other animal. But to see a human being laying on the shoulder in... In a posture that was obviously not asleep, my my head said, "I think that guy's dead." And as I got up a little closer, I I saw blood and scratches on his face. I saw blood on the pavement around his head. And for the rest of the night, I processed how in the world does a human body end up on the shoulder of Highway seventy five. And it wasn't until the next day that I saw a news article that a guy had been driving his Jeep with the doors off and no seatbelt. And evidently thinking that the laws of Newtonian physics didn't apply to him, he got distracted with something and his Jeep hit the left-hand retaining wall and he kept going over the retaining wall and landed on the shoulder of Highway 75, lights out, 49 years old. And I, mean, I just, I thought about the ripples of this, this something like this, this causes. You don't know if he's, if he's a husband and some spouse is now having to bury her husband. You know, if he's a father and I mean, if he's 49 years old, say he's got, uh, early adolescents, teenagers that are now going to be um, fatherless. If you had a job, the, the I mean the ripples that are caused by an event like this just are massive. And, and I I couldn't the empathy which twenty years ago I would have thought idiot wear your seatbelt. So, I mean, I guess I take that as, I take a grain of, of solace from it in that the, my character, the horn, my, the horns on my character are being blunted 
that I can actually feel empathy for something like that. Tell tell Adam that his shirt was wrinkle free. Inside Joe, we have a friend who doesn't wear his seatbelt because he doesn't want to get his t-shirt wrinkled. Oh my! This Jeep was fine, by the way. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it hit the wall and then rolled on and into another wall. And Jeep was fine. Jeep it may have had some some scratches on the wheels or paint, but still drivable. I drive a lot in Georgia and Tennessee. Towards the end of each year, those signs above the road will say 900-something people have died in Tennessee on, on Tennessee roads this year. That's one state driving in one, you know, just because you're driving on the road, 900-something people in one year woke up that morning to attend to their daily duties, mm-hmm. and by the end of the day, they were dead. For them, it was their end of time, and they didn't know it. That's right. I mean, I, I thought all of those things. Michael? Um, a couple of weeks ago on the 8th, there was a little lady, Beverly Miller. She was in Pennsylvania, and she left early for work, 15 minutes early, because she had some extra things she had to do. And she did not get out of her development, just a few blocks, and she came up on a lady parked by the side of the road and a guy laying in on the ground. And uh, Beverly stopped her car and got out, and um, she proceeded to give CPR. She got herself all messed up, and then she had to go home and shower and change her clothes and go back to work late. Um, but the guy she saved was me hmm. on the road. I had no pulse. I was not breathing. I was gray. And uh, so she, when she went to work, she still didn't know if I was alive or dead until yesterday when I talked to her on the phone. Sometimes it gets real personal to stop and help somebody. It does. Um, (sighs) Wow. Okay. Tuesday's lesson, grace and good works. I used to think that the works came before grace. I used to think grace had to be earned. And the better and more numerous the works, the, the more grace we got. Now I understand the works come from the grace. To those who receive, this is from Ellen White, Ministry of Healing. To those who receive or to impart to others from every direction or coming calls for help, for help, God calls upon men to minister gladly to their fellow men. Okay, now what law is being described here? What design law? To those who receive or to impart to others. It's the law of giving. Thank you. Is the law of giving. When we receive, we are to freely give. And when we freely give... The more more we more we receive, it's a bit of a mouthful. Continuous cycle of giving, in harmony with that, is the law of exertion and the law of restoration. In the Old Testament, um, it repeatedly talks about people who were blessed. God says, "I blessed you with everything. 
I gave you everything, and when you had everything, you used it for your own self. You started worshiping it instead of me. So what, what I meant to be a blessing, you used for a curse, so to speak. And so I think this, this talks about the river of life. We are to be part of the river of life, not the lake of life. So God blesses us with something, we're turn around and pass the blessing on. We're not just like, oh, the Lord's blessing me, isn't this great? I'm getting a big lake here. We're supposed to pass that on. And that's the only way God can trust us to give us more, is if we use what he gives us in any capacity. Not just money, but time and health and everything. If we use what he gives us, then he can bless us with more. But very often, when we're blessed, we'll turn around and start taking credit for what we've said or done or, you know, whatever, it ends up being me, 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 me instead of God. And so that's where God has to tread softly in blessing us because it's hard to bless us without us turning it into a self-centered thing. Yeah, we often take the credit to ourselves, and that's, that's correct. I want to jump to Thursday's lesson for a minute. Again, we do not do good works, care for the poor, lift up the oppressed, feed the hungry, in order to earn salvation or standing with God. In Christ, by faith, we have all the standing with God we will ever need. Rather, we recognize ourselves as both sinners and victims of sin, who are nevertheless loved and redeemed by God. While we still battle with temptations to self-centeredness and greed, the self-sacrificing and humble grace of God offers a new kind of life and love that will transform our lives. Thank you. And again, well said by the lesson. Um, to affirm them for the excellent job they've done this quarter. Thursday's lesson, the everlasting gospel. Okay, what comes to mind when you hear the word everlasting? Any other synonyms? Eternal. Eternal. Eternal gospel. And oftentimes I get into the... Um, I still I fall into the mindset of thinking eternal future. But it's also eternal past and it's eternal present. The gospel, capital G, was true in eternity past, is true today, right this minute, this Sabbath, and is true it will be true a million years from now. From the lesson, the transforming invitation and appeal of the gospel, quote, to every tribe, nation, language, and people has continued throughout Christian history. However, Revelation describes a renewed proclamation of this message, the good news about Jesus and all that it entails at the end of time. I do take exception to this. I do not think that throughout Christian history, the gospel has been taken to every nation, tribe, language, and people, because if it had, Christ would have come by now. I think a false gospel has been taken to every nation, tribe, kindred, and people. And... The last part of the paragraph, the renewed proclamation of, quote, this message, this is a proclamation, this is the Elijah message that we talk about sometimes in here, this reference in Malachi. This is, this is a restoration of this and a bringing of the, quote, everlasting slash eternal gospel to every tribe, nation, kindred, and people. Revelation speaks of us in need of a need to come, quote, come out of Babylon, which is, what is Babylon symbolic for? Confusion, specifically religious confusion. 
Uh, Revelation 18.4, Then I heard a voice from heaven, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And referencing the Elijah message, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In Thursday's lesson, um, the lesson highlights... Uh, judgment, worship, and creation themes from Revelation 14. Are these linked? Judgment, worship, and creation. And when you hear the word judgment, do you hear, what do you hear? Do you hear a legal proclamation? Do you hear a verdict with sentencing? Or do you hear discernment? Do you hear diagnosis with treatment recommendations? And a correct understanding of who God is. The hour of his judgment is the hour that we look at him and go, is he the way the world has portrayed him, or is he the way that Jesus portrayed him? Right, and it goes right back to which law lens you're looking at this through. I, I can't stress how importantly, I know I know we talk about design law versus imposed law all the time in here, but it, it is the literal linchpin that makes everything else make sense. All the pieces fall into place when you start fleshing out the differences between um, imposed versus uh, design law, natural law. So I've, I've I did a table in the notes, kind of fleshing out some differences between uh, imposed law, which maybe level one through four thinking, and design law level um, five through seven. So judgment. Impose law. God is coming with fire and brimstone to execute, execute judgment on the wicked because he's angry that they broke his holy law. Punishment is nigh. His anger must be appeased. And punishment is external. That's right. Punishment comes from God. From an imposed law, God's coming to correctly diagnose human characters, and he will diagnose some as healed and some as terminal. His diagnosis, his diagnosis will be in harmony with the human being's choices. We read design, design law. Design law. That's exactly right. To the concept of worship, imposed law. We must worship God because He said so. And he'll be angry if we worship idols, or worse, if we become atheists. And we have to worship Him in my way, not yours. His ego must be appeased. I think there might be a, a, a version of anger that we can understand as parents, for example. When your child makes terrible choices to the point where you can no longer reach them in any way, where you can't retrieve them from the choices that they've made, and now they're solely sunk in whatever situation they've caused themselves usually to do, or somebody else has caused them to do. And you have, a, you have a, I think, a... a Anger that something has consumed your child. The child made terrible choices. You still love your child. You'd love to remedy that child, but the child will not be remedied. There isn't anything you can do anymore. So I think we focus on the um, the wrath of God, which according to Romans 1 is letting people go. Right. Um, so they exchange the truth about God for a lie, so he let them go. That's God's wrath. We don't we understand wrath by our own perspective of anger and get even. 
God's, God's wrath is like, I, I, there's nothing more I can do for this person despite all the resources of heaven that have been activated to try to restore this human back to into the laws that will make keep them alive and keep them with me. They will not do it. And that has got to bring forth some compassion and frustration that we as, as parents would understand more if that kind of thing happens with your child. And, you know, you hate the thing that's killing them. You don't hate them. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not trying to confuse righteous indignation with, with what I've def- defined as anger. And even, even that righteous indignation can't be appeased. If the parent of the wayward child and the child has, has rejected every intervention possible and the parent has to just let him go, that, that righteous indignation turns to sorrow and it can't be appeased. The only thing that would appease that is healing. There's a restoration of the child back into harmony with the laws of health or the laws of whatever. The parents of the guy I saw dead, the only thing that's going to appease their sorrow would be a restoration of him back to his life. The, the idea that I was trying to flesh out the idea that uh, the, the imposed law construct leads to this... this um, this call for appeasement of whatever. Same thing with the worship. His ego has to be appeased. He's so arrogant that if we don't worship him, his ego doesn't get stroked enough, and he's going to lash out in anger. We have to appease his ego. That's a that's an imposed law, level one through four, construct of what it means to worship. Isaiah 1 says, uh, starting with verse 25, this is God, uh, Therefore, in 24, it says, Lord, therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will get relief from my foes. I will avenge myself on my enemies. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities and restore your judges as before. That's right. That's God's definition of vengeance is, is a cleaning, a healing, a restoration, fixing the problem. Uh, our definition of vengeance is the crap that comes out of Hollywood, the vigilante to, you know, get revenge on the, the drug dealers that killed his wife and kid. I mean, the, the garbage rights itself is as predictable as sunrise. The vengeance a doctor would take on a cancerous patient, for example, would be the correct diagnosis of cancer. You are dying of cancer. I'm going to take vengeance on the cancer that's killing you. I'm going to remove that <laughs> Give you chemo and radiation and restore your health. So I want to move to a design law uh, explanation or definition of worship. So one of God's design laws is the law of worship. It states that, that in some turn that our characters will be transformed to the likeness of our object of worship. And the worship of a God of love, worship a God of love because it's how life was designed to operate. There's no, there's no being in the universe that will elevate us beyond the worship of a God of love. Even an angelic being is a created being and will fall short of of the worship of an eternal God of love. Uh, Wrapping up here. So creation, from from an imposed law perspective. Well, God's powerful enough to speak the universe into existence, and he brought us into the world, he can take us out. And if we don't comply... 
with his mandates. His power must be appeased. So from a design law perspective, God's designed life to operate around a certain set of protocols. Oh, come on. It's killing me. Any deviation from these protocols brings sickness and eventual death. Learn to follow these protocols and live. Forever. It's our privilege to learn the the design law of life. And it's necessary because that's how life was designed to operate. One last comment. It's so confusing that because we go back to King James Version, but plenty of other Bible versions reflect that by the translators. Um, how they were translated from the original languages, they reflect that view of God so much in their translation. So don't you think that's very confusing for people reading the Bible? certainly can be. I mean, I put my bias on this lesson. I, I doubt very seriously that I transmitted the entire message that the author of the lesson intended. I put my own bias, my own filters my own interpretation on it and it's something that we need to certainly something we need to understand happens when you read something or hear something that there are by there are hidden biases there may be hidden agendas behind what was what was is written or said but we also need to be discerning and thinkers and we all we need to we need to have a standard, an immovable standard, a standard of truth with a capital T, fleshed out from multiple different multiple different sources of evidence that we can compare these things with. If if a doctrine or a, a text or something doesn't harmonize and reveal a God of love then either it's mistaken or our understanding is mistaken. That makes sense? You know, that's why we just must pray before we study. You know that God will renew our mind, give us a mind that does understand his protocols. Because we can't do it. Well said. Gracious Father, thank you for the opportunity to come and worship as our consciences dictate. Uh, I personally thank you for this group. I pray for the family of the young man that uh, died in the car accident. Um, comfort them only as you as you can. And bring us back here safely in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.